Why don't you guys open up your uh, Bible to Mark chapter uh, 14, starting in verse 26. We're going to continue along in Mark this morning. It's a pretty heavy passage this morning that we're going over um, just before church picnic, um, but that's where God has us this morning. So if you would read along with me. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Uh, the hour, or all things, or, and he prayed, or, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping or asleep? Did you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let, um, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, God, I just lift up this passage to you this morning. It is amazing what you have done for us. I pray as we dig into this passage, Lord, that our hearts are both troubled and overjoyed with your love, knowing that your wrath was poured out on your Son so that we would be free and saved from sin and saved from your wrath. Lord, I pray that through that, our gratitude and our love for you just motivates us to live in obedience, to live a radical life of glorifying you, Lord. I thank you for this time. Just pray that you're with us right now, Lord, as we go through this passage. Amen. Um, Pastor Brent asked me about two weeks ago if I would uh, preach this morning. And um, as we were going through uh, what we were going to be on um, this Sunday, uh, what passage we would be on, we came across that it looked like we were going to be at Gethsemane. And I want to be honest with you guys, my heart dropped. Um, and to be 
just straightforward. I really didn't like this passage. There was something about it that just bothered me. Without studying it, without knowing exactly what was going on, it just was one of those passages, and there's a few passages I found throughout my, my life that just bothered me. And I've learned in seminary, because I've got to study a lot of those passages, that um, it's, it's mostly, it's usually, and all the times, actually, it's because I don't understand what is going on. And once I've studied it and understand it, um, I've got to a place where usually those are my, my favorite passages. And uh, I wanted to encourage you guys this morning. I know there's a lot of, the Bible is just real. <laughs> and there's a lot of passages like that. Don't, don't go away from them. Go towards them and understand them. Because understanding this passage, I've really come to the place that you really can't understand the, the crucifixion. I believe you just don't get exactly what's going on unless you understand Gethsemane. And the crucifixion is the centerpiece of the whole entire Bible. So this is a super important passage. In seminary, my preaching class, they've uh, taught us to start with a, a good intro to grab people's attention. And as I was going through this passage, I've come to the place to realize there just is no intro. There, there is no human experience. There is no illustration. I, I, I'm going to ask you guys to take the most horrific event that's happened in your life, take the most horrific experience, and just put it to the side. Because it doesn't compare. And I don't say that lightly. I understand. I've been here long enough to know that there's been a lot of hurt and pain and hard times that we've gone through as a church and, and different families have gone through. But Gethsemane is beyond the scope of human experience. Honestly, it's beyond the scope of human imagination. We're facing infinite realities this morning. Horrifying realities. And the best I can do and the best I'm going to try to do this morning is just stick to the words of the text as close as I can. The Bible calls Jesus the man of sorrows. And there is no passage that shows that better than this one. And grasp some context as we jump into this passage this morning. Uh, this is Jesus' last week. Uh, the gospel spent a lot of time in Jesus' last week, and we've been talking about Jesus' last week for a while now. Uh, Pastor Brent has been preaching the last two Sundays on, on the Last Supper. And we've seen in the Last Supper Jesus to start, starting to establish the New Covenant, going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But there is only one way to bring forth the New Covenant, and that's his death. And we're getting close to it. So here's my, my three points of the sermon this morning. Man's absolute failure. Jesus' amazing obedience. And God's astonishing love. Man's absolute failure. Jesus' amazing obedience. And God's astonishing love. So we'll start with man's absolute failure. Look at the, the verse 26. Chapter 14, verse 26. I'm reading from the ESV. I think the NASB is up on the um, screen this morning, so it's slightly different. I know Brent preaches at the, out of the NASB. Um, but Mark 26 says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. 
they, this being the, 12, or the 11 disciples, the, the 12th Judas has left to betray Jesus. These are a group of guys that have spent three years together. Right? I, I truly believe at this point um, in the Gospels, these, these men loved each other, a deep love. Except Judas. Yet through that love of each other and a love for Jesus even, they're completely clueless still. Mark really highlights that through his gospel, how clueless the disciples are, and they are up to this point. They just had Passover dinner together, time of fellowship, time of loving each other. They just sang a hymn, and they're walking to the Mount of Olives, which was a normal thing for them to do. It's about a 15 to 20 minute walk from where they were, and Jesus just drops a bomb on them. Verse 27, he says, And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. Fall away uh, is, a, is from a Greek word that we get the word scandalize from or scandalous from. Jesus is saying, you guys are all going to scandalize. You are all going to sin. You are all going to forsake me. And Jesus knew as he's done throughout most of the, the Gospels, the future. And he knows he's going to the cross alone. How did Jesus know this? Well, well, partly because of Scripture. Look at the second part of verse 27. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament. I think it will be worth our while to look at it. and Just stay where you're at and just listen um, to the prophecy. It's from... Uh, Zechariah 13:7, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes this passage from the Old Testament and says, I will strike the shepherd. And my question as I was reading this is, who's the I? Who's striking the shepherd? If you look at Zechariah, it's clear that it's Yahweh, God, God will strike the shepherd. And if God is striking the shepherd, then who is he striking? Who is the shepherd? Obviously, Jesus, right? The shepherd. Zechariah says, the man who stands next to me. That's the ESV. The NASB says, against the man, my associate. This word in Hebrew, my associate, is translated other places in the Bible as, as neighbor or near relative or companion. It literally could be translated, the man of my union or even my equal. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my equal. This is God the Father predicting to crush God the Son. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, uh, 4 through 6, this is a, a, very, a very familiar verse to most of us. Starting in verse 4, it says this. You don't have to turn there, just listen. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Let me just read some of the words that are in those two verses. Griefs, sorrows, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastisement, wounds, the iniquities of us all. We're going to talk about this more later, but but the main point in verse 27 is this. When the shepherd is crushed, the sheep will scatter. And here's the point. Without Jesus, the disciples are nothing. And the truth is, as I'm going through this and I'm reading this and I'm understanding what Peter and the disciples are saying here, without Jesus, we are nothing. I am nothing. I mean, literally, Jesus, God, made us. There is no such thing as a self-made man. I mean, the reality of this has is, is been hitting me in the last few months as, as my daughter is getting created. I mean, no one said I'm going to be born into Hatchapi in America. At best, we're all rebels. At best, we're all failures. But, look at 28. There's all these, these buts in the Bible sometimes that just jump out at you and just like, save you. But, and, and, and 28, Jesus says this, and I think the disciples just go right past it. They don't hear it. But, Jesus says, without me, you're failures. Without me, you're hopeless. But, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. But after death, I will be raised. And I'm going to find you and bring you back. And truthfully, we are going to go and change the world. I am going to use you to change the world. In Acts, it says the disciples, the apostles, turned the world upside down. Without Christ... We are failures, but in Christ we're victorious. Romans 8, 37 says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But Peter doesn't get this, of course. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I I will not. This obviously is just pure pride, right? I can do it. I'm not going to fall away. I won't scandalize. I'm strong. Yet Peter has no idea how weak he truly is. He doesn't know how powerful the flesh is. I see this a a lot, actually, working with junior hires and high schoolers and high schoolers. Um, I think... As you get older, you start realizing how weak we, we truly are. But high schoolers, there's this pride sometimes, a lot of the time. I don't know how many times I've had conversations when someone gets a boyfriend or girlfriend or something like that, and I say, hey, you need to be careful. And they say, I can handle it. I can handle it. Or hanging out with the wrong group, and I'm like, be careful. And they, they say, I got it. I'm going to influence them. They're not going to influence me. 
or those that go to college and they're just like, no, I'm going to be good. You know, the ones that, the, the, the high schoolers that are seniors that are going to college that are scared, man, there's going to be a lot of temptations. I want to make sure I'm doing what's right. Can I call you if something comes up? Those are the ones that, that rely on Jesus' strength, not their own. And they're always the ones that do well. But we should all know that the, the flesh is powerful and we're weak without Jesus. Look at verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Again, he says, Peter, without me you're weak. This is the second time Jesus has told Peter this. And the first time, it's in Luke uh, uh, 22, Jesus adds, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Without me, Peter, you're no match. Before the rooster crows twice, tonight, you will be ashamed of me. Verse 31, but he, this being Peter, said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Again, this is pride. Jesus knows they will all fall away. They will all sin. They will all deny him. And ultimately, they will all fail. He knows he's going to the cross alone. And, and here's the point of this, this part of the passage. With, without Jesus, it's not just the disciples, but we are hopeless we are all sinners. We are all destined for eternal damnation. We are all failures. The disciples at this point are clueless. But with, without Jesus, I'm just as weak. We all are just as weak. And so the first part of this passage is man's absolute failure. But the second part is Jesus' amazing obedience. Jesus' amazing obedience. Look at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. Gethsemane means uh, olive press. This is at the Mount of Olives. It's night. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John. This is uh, the inner circle. This is Jesus' closest friends. You have the 12 disciples that are the people he's been hanging out with for, for three years. And then you have these three who are the leaders and who he brings to different places to teach him different things. And he grabs his three closest friends and brings them with him. The second part of verse 33 says, And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The English just doesn't grasp this word, uh, greatly distressed. The word in Greek actually means just to be amazed or shocked. And it could be positive or negative. One definition uh, says this um, for this, the Greek word used for greatly distressed. Intense emotional state because of something causing great surprise or perplexity. Jesus was surprised by something. And when you add the word troubled in Greek, which means distress that follows a great shock, when you put these two words together, you get something happened 
so bad that it surprised Jesus. So bad that when reflecting on it, it caused extreme anguish. One commentator I've read said this, the impact of these two words is incalculable and carries its own power to stab the reader wide awake. Jesus was surprised by terror. Another commentator asked, how could the second person of the Trinity, who, even in his human form, seemed to anticipate every possibility, be shocked? But he is. He's He's stumbling, dumbfounded, astonished. As he's on his way to pray, darkness and horror comes down on him beyond anything he could have anticipated. And the pain of it makes it feel as though he is crumbling on the spot. So I was going through this passage and studying it, and we've been studying it for like two weeks now. This is weighing heavy on me. And I got to this point, and I was going through these two Greek, two Greek words and trying to figure this out, and I'm just like, what happened? What is going on? Verse 34. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus is saying, My agony is so bad, it feels like I'm going to die. It feels like this is going to kill me. And honestly, it almost does. If, if you, it, it, this was so bad. If you look at Acts or um, Luke twenty-two forty-four, it says this. And being in agony, agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. As I was studying this, I, I found out this is medically possible that you can be so shocked and so in agony and stress that your capillaries burst. And you can sweat blood. So bad that in Luke twenty two forty three it says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven to strengthening him. Jesus was so physically weak from this event that an angel came down and strengthened him. This happened one other time in the Gospels that I know of. It happened in the Temptations where Jesus went 40 days without food. And if you go 40 days without food, you're physically so weak that angels had to come down and minister to him, 40 days worth of not eating. This was one moment, and it brought him to that position where an angel had to come down to strengthen him. And Jesus turns and asks his closest friends, look at verse 34, remain here and watch. Remain here and watch. Watch just means stay awake or be alert. I truly believe that Jesus was saying, be here with me. Not because Jesus needed them there. It's obvious he didn't need them there. They leave him. They leave him. And he goes to the cross. But I believe he wanted them there. Be there with me during this hard time. They had a lesson to learn, but I think he was asking them to be there. Verse 35. 
And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Again, I told you that that this passage um, bothered me. Uh, this passage was a passage that just reading it and going through it and, and, and the little bit I know of it, I, I didn't like it. And this was one of the parts that really bothered me, and I, I just didn't get what's going on here. And I couldn't put my finger on why does this part of this passage bother me so bad. Um, and we're going through a book at, with the high schoolers, at, um, the high school and junior hires for the Bible studies this summer, um, by Timothy Keller, called Encounters with Jesus. It's a great book. Um, but Timothy Keller talks about this part of this passage right here, and I think he hit it. He, he hit exactly what was bothering me about this passage. Let me read. I'm just going to read what he wrote. Timothy Keller says, Consider that all the gospel writers knew by, by the time they wrote their accounts that many of Jesus' own followers were able to face death with remarkable calmness or serenity. Meaning, by the time Mark was writing these accounts and Luke and Matthew... There's already been many martyrs, many people dying for the faith. And these people dying died calmly in peace. Luke records in Acts that when the the Christian leader Stephen faced his executioners, his radiant face was like a face of an angel. And as they stoned him to death, he gently prayed for their forgiveness. Early Christian writers, such as Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp, pointed to the poise with which Christians faced torture and death. One historian writes that this was one of the ways Christian thinkers attempted to recommend their faith to pagan, the pagan population. They argued that Christians suffered and died better than pagans. They would point to, say, look how they die. Look how Christians die compared to everyone else. They die in peace. They know where they're going. Christians went to the lions singing hymns. They went into the flames with their hands raised high in prayer, but not Jesus. Jesus is facing death in a way that his followers did not. His face is not radiant as the face of an angel, he is not calm or poised or at peace. What is the reason, then, for the magnitude of Jesus' agony and horror before his death? I believe the answer is in verse 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The answer is the cup. The cup. No martyr has ever faced the cup before. The cup in the Old Testament is God's infinite wrath against sin. This is horror on an infinite scale. Honestly, this passage is so far beyond us. This is infinity and infinity colliding. The Old Testament talks about the cup in Isaiah 51. It speaks of those who drink the cup of his wrath, the bowl of staggering. 
Ezekiel 23 says, you will drink the cup of ruin and desolation and you will tear your breast. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16 says, For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And Jesus is facing the cup. And Jesus is facing not just eternity of wrath, but eternities of wrath. I mean, if one sin equals eternity of wrath, if you sin against an infinite holy God, the punishment is eternity, infinite. So if you take millions of sinners from past and future, you times it by billions of sins, and you times that by infinity, This is what Jesus was facing. I mean, nothing affected Jesus like this. 40 days without food, calm. Temptation from the devil himself, no problem. Facing leprosy, he touches the leopard to heal him. Cities full of sick sick people, he, he heals the whole city. Hungry crowd, he feeds them with some fish and bread. Angry mobs, walks right through them. Legions, armies of demons, he just says go. People wanting to kill him, he preaches with authority. Storm at sea, storm so bad that Matthew says this is like an earthquake. All the disciples thought they were going to die. He's asleep. Complete peace. They have to wake him. He rebukes the storm and it's just calm. Another storm, he walks through it on water. But one taste of the cup, one taste of the cup, he staggers. He falls to his knees. It shocks him. It makes him sweat blood. The thought of it almost kills him. I mean, this is how scary God's wrath is. We have no idea, and me included, we have no idea what Jesus has saved us from. But Gethsemane gives us a glimpse. You know what the... I know it's not popular to talk about God's wrath. It's just not in our culture. If you're new and you came and you come this morning, you're like, this church just talks about wrath. It's not popular. I understand that, but, but we need to talk about it. The most horrific part of God's wrath, you know what that is? It's, the theologians call it the torture of divine absence. The, the fact that you can't feel God's presence. God's presence is there, but you can't feel it. It's a separation from God. I mean, think about this. Look, look at this passage. Jesus cries out, Abba, Father. Abba means daddy. We know that here. It's, a, it's an intimate way of, of, of addressing your, your dad. Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
You see God's answer? It's, it's there. Silence. The most horrific part of hell, it's the lack of feeling God's presence. It's the lack of being able to cry out to God for comfort. And here's the ironic thing. It's completely fair. It's completely fair because the essence of sin is saying, God, leave me alone. God, I don't want your rules. I don't like that. Stay away from me. And that's what hell is. God leaving you alone. Timothy Keller in the book writes, If you want freedom from God, you will quite justly get what you hope for, and it will be torment. So what exactly happened in Gethsemane? This is still confusing to me at this point. I mean, I was like, what is going on? Why now? What? Jesus knew he was going to the cross. It didn't bother him. He would tell the disciples. He didn't fall on his knees. And then right after this, the passage next that we're going to preach next week is amazing. Jesus' authority, the, the poise he has, the calmness, the peace he has, and he walks straight to the cross. Why here? It just really bothered me. And I was digging for the answer, and I came across that many theologians believe that this was a foretaste of the cross. This was a foretaste of the cup that was coming to him. Just a taste. Why? Well, it has to do with a lesser-known doctrine that deals with Jesus' passive and active obedience. His passive and active obedience. It's a really important doctrine. I think we know this doctrine as I'm explaining it to you. But Jesus' passive obedience, it's, it, it, he, in his passive obedience, he took the penalty we deserved. He died the death we should have died. Right? But there's a problem with that. If Jesus just died the death we deserved, that brings us like to zero. We're negative infinity and now we're zero. We're just not sinners. But we're far from righteous. We're far from being des- deserving to being in the presence of God fully. So that's where Jesus' active obedience comes in. He lived the life we should have lived. He was 100% obedient, 100% righteous. Therefore, when you put your faith in Jesus, his righteousness is imputed to you. Your sins are forgiven, he pays for them, and his righteousness are imputed to you. This means that Jesus not only got the penalty we deserved, we get the reward from God that he deserved. Our penalty is placed on him, and his righteousness is imputed to us. He's treated like a sinner. We're treated as if we're 100% righteous, as if we lived Jesus' life. This is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 is talking about. It says, For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
But this really doesn't explain Gethsemane. I mean, what happened? What does this have to do with Gethsemane? Here's the deal. Theologians believe that the taste of God's wrath in Gethsemane changed the crucifixion from just being passive obedience to active obedience as well. With that taste, he knew exactly what was coming. And now he has to choose. The only example that I could think of, um, and and I want to give a disclaimer before I give this example, nothing compares. No pain, no torment, no... There's nothing that compares. It's all the worst put into one. That's the lack of God's presence in, in, in your life. But to understand this doctrine, I, I was thinking it's kind of like Sarah's pregnancy. She has no idea what's coming in labor. Honestly, it, it's kind of a passive, it's going to happen. But it would be like if she could live a minute in the most intense pain of labor and then right afterwards say, you have a choice now to go through it or not. It would go from being a passive experience to now an active choice. Fully know, knowing what she's getting into. Just a taste of God's wrath brought Jesus to his knees. It made him sweat blood. So the thought of it almost killed him. And yet Jesus answers God... Yet not what I will, but what you will. I mean, that's amazing obedience. So we have man's absolute failure, Jesus' amazing obedience, and lastly, God's astonishing love. And Again, like I said, I know it's not popular to talk about God's wrath, but you don't know God's love unless you understand God's wrath. You don't know what Jesus has done for, me, for you until you can just somewhat grasp what he saved you from. Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. This, this amazes me. Jesus leaves this moment of extreme anguish He leaves this time in prayer where he's in agony to check on his friends. They were supposed to be there for him. And they were sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Could you not be there for me for one hour? Verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Not only does he come and check on them, he's concerned for them. Pray, pray. Tempting is coming, pray. Then he makes an excuse for him. This amazes me. Look at the second part of verse 38. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's like he said, you let me down, but I know you mean well. I really believe Jesus right here is just believing the best. He doesn't dwell on the fact that they're 
letting them down. This is what it means in the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes all things. Verse 39. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Again he enters into this agony, thinking about what he's going to face. Verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. During this time in, this, in Gethsemane, um, the devil, it's clear in the other Gospels, is, is tempting him. The devil is tempting him throughout this time. A lot of people, a lot of theologians and scholars call this the last great temptation. The last great temptation. The devil is saying, don't go to the cross. It's going to be hard. This has been the devil's temptation from the beginning. The three temptations in the wilderness was to try to stop him going to the cross. When Peter said, you're not going to die, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The devil is saying to, to Jesus, don't go to the cross. It's going to be hard. But my guess is the aspect of this temptation is this. Why would you go to the cross for these people? They can't even stay awake for you. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I realized, I mean, I'm no different. What Christ has saved me from, and, I, and throughout the day, I barely even acknowledge it or think about it. I don't live in that reality. Yet, out of love, God the Son said, I will face the cup. Out of love, God the Father said, I will pour out my cup. I mean, after studying this, it brought a whole new perspective on John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For me, a guy that couldn't even stay awake for him. For Peter, for his three friends. This is astonishing love. And if you want proof of God's love, if you don't feel love, you want proof of God's love, look at verse 41. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus sees his betrayer, Judas, coming, and he walks straight to him. And he says, out of love, I choose the cross. I choose the cup. That's astonishing love. So we have man's absolute failure, Jesus' amazing obedience, and God's astonishing love. There is takeaway. I mean, I hope... The biggest thing we get out of this is just awe, amazement. But there is takeaway that we can apply to our lives directly. For, first of all, Jesus' obedience is an example. It's an example to us. He's in the dark, extreme pressure, 
extreme temptation. All his friends are asleep, so he's alone. Yet, Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. And I know, for me at least, it's really hard to, to identify with Jesus. I mean, he's so far beyond me. But there's a, there's a practical way. How did he do this? The Bible gives us a practical way of, of being obedient. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says this, looking to Jesus, meaning he's our example. Look to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Meaning he said, obeying is going to be hard. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Obeying is going to be hard, but there's joy on the other end. There's joy on the other end. And there's plenty of times in my life where I just don't want to obey. I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do. If I could just tell myself there's joy on the other end, I have faith that joy is coming through obedience. And that's exactly what happens. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Don't turn there, but just listen. In verse 5, it says this. Have this mind among yourselves. I mean, think like this. Live like this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he was equal with God, yet he did not count it. He didn't grasp it and hold on to it. Instead, verse 7 says, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. I mean, if that was bad enough to come down and live with man, live on the earth that he spoke into existence, Verse 8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I'm talking about hard. The, becoming obedient to the point of death. That was hard. But what happened? Therefore, verse 9, therefore mean because of his obedience, therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Obeying is going to be hard, but there's joy on the other end. That's the example Jesus gave us. So Jesus is an example of obedience, but He's also an example, a model, a model of prayer. Jesus says in in verse 38, chapter 14, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And that's exactly what he did. As a side note, as I'm getting more mature in my Christianity... When, when, I feel, when I was younger and less mature in my Christianity, I would just get into sin and I'd be like, how did I get here? And then as I got a little bit mature, I kind of like, oh, I'm getting tempted right now. And I feel like as I'm getting even more mature, I'm like, I know tomorrow or the Saturday coming up is going to be a temptation. Or this person I'm going to meet, I'm going to be tempted to lash out or I'm going to be tempted to gossip or I'm going to be tempted. Those other two things happen still. But I need to pray before, during, and after the temptation. 
And look at the example of the prayer that Jesus gives us. This, I, I love this. Jesus was brutally honest. We can be honest with God. He cried out to God, this is going to be hard. He was brutally honest, yet he was completely submissive. Completely submissive. Your will. This is going to be hard, but your will, God. Your will. That's a model for us. One famous theologian said, the basic purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to mine, but to mold my will into his. So Jesus was an example, a model of prayer. Jesus was also extremely patient with people. Right? I mean, think about this. Extreme pain, extreme agony, stops everything to check on his friends, and then believes the best of them. I mean, if our church, if each one of us would just believe the best, if in our marriages we believe the best of our spouse, not always the worst, or come to the worst conclusions, well, we'd be blessed. I mean, we would... People would look at this church as completely different. I love this church, don't get me wrong, but man, if we believe the best in everything, it would be, it would be such a, an awesome place. And that's what Jesus, that's what he models for us, to believe the best. And then he goes and sacrifices his life for them. This is extreme patient and love. But the last point the last thing I want you to take away is Jesus loves you. I mean, this is obvious in this passage. He literally went through hell for you. Stop trying to work for his love. Work out of gratitude because of his love. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, what more could he do to prove his love? And I want to end with this. I feel like I know most of you in this crowd, but I don't know everyone. And if you're not a Christian in here today, if you don't know where you stand with God this morning, I just want to be honest with you. You are facing God's wrath. This is the wrath that just a taste of brought Jesus to his knees, made him sweat blood, and almost killed him on the spot. The three points of this sermon is just the gospel. Good news. Man's failure. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. We've all strayed. Romans 3, 23 says, For we all, or for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, and that's death as God's wrath. Yet Jesus was obedient. Obedient in his life, the life we didn't live. Obedient in taking on the sins that we deserved and paying the price that we deserved. 
And last is God's love through Jesus' obedience. God offers forgiveness of sins and salvation from his wrath. Therefore, if you're not a Christian, put your trust and faith, not in yourself, but in the works of Christ. The works of Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. Pray right now, God, accept me, save me, because of what Jesus has done. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Dear Heavenly Father, I just lift this time up to you. God, I pray for those that don't know you, if there are anyone in this room that's unsure or is sure that they don't know you. You soften their hearts, Lord. You work on their hearts and turn them to you. Lord, I pray for us that do know you, that we wrestle with this reality, that we leave here with a weight and a joy, a weight of what Christ has gone through for us, a weight of what it means to be saved from your eternal wrath and a joy that you loved us enough to find a way. God, let us out of gratitude just glorify you with every ounce of our being that the reality of the cross is the motivation in everything that we do. God, I thank you for this time and I just pray that you're with us as we leave this place. Amen.